Anyone who has had someone close to them receive a cancer diagnosis, which is unfortunately most of us, knows how distressing it can be. But what's the proper response? Do you turn inward and keep it a secret? Or are you supposed to rely entirely on others? Luckily, I have a couple of experts today with knowledge from both the diagnosed and the caregiver sides of things to help us figure that out. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guests today are Nancy Rugart Plummer and Robert Rugart. This mother and son duo have almost over a half dozen experiences with severe cancer in their family, with Nancy being one of the only people to have survived stage 4 ovarian cancer and metastatic brain cancer in the world. That's not to say it was ever an easy journey, but they learned a lot having to go through the process more than once. Now they're on the show to pass along the critical lessons they learned along the way and share how you can apply the same steps to your everyday life. Let's not just win, but conquer. Welcome to the show, Nancy Rugart Plummer and her son, Robert Rugart. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. I am so glad to have you both on the show. Why don't you introduce yourselves a little bit for the audience? Sure. I'm Nancy Rugart Plummer. I'm Robert's mom, and we're so happy to come on board and share with you all that we learned from my experience with ovarian cancer stage four and metastatic brain cancer. Uh, I'm her son, uh, as she mentioned, Robert Rugart. I was a caretaker for a uh, caregiver, I suppose, for not just her, but also my grandfather and wife during their cancer journeys. And uh, we wrote a book together recently about her experience and and all the lessons that we learned from it. It sounds like it could be a fairly harrowing experience, you know, despite the fact you found like a great outlet for it. Do you usually share your stories to help like frame things for people? Sure. I think it's important. Uh it all began in the fall of 2015 and I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I had bloating. I had trouble digesting my food and I had abdominal pain. And so I made an emergency appointment with my OBGYN of 25 years. He was a superstar in the world of gynecology. And I, I really felt he had an answer to my pain. So when I came to the appointment, I, I'd already just arrived and was dressed for success. I had been meeting with a client beforehand. And when I shared with him my symptoms, he simply looked at me and replied, Nancy, you look beautiful. And you've always been the perfect specimen of health. You know, I was dumbfounded by his response. And I kept thinking, what does wearing makeup and high heels have to do with my health? And so I begrudged, I mean, I just kept asking him, please, you know, take my symptoms seriously. And they regretfully agreed to doing an ultrasound a couple of weeks out. I didn't tell anyone about that appointment and I didn't tell anyone about my upcoming scan. And so after 10 days, while well, I'd been waiting impatiently for the office to call me, I finally called them and they shared with me that my scan was clean and they didn't offer any follow-up appointment. And I was so dejected. 
I didn't ask for one either. You know, they call ovarian cancer the silent killer. And I just keep wondering, maybe it's just that no one's listening. And so I endured that pain for seven more months until finally I couldn't take it any longer. And I asked a dear friend of mine to take me to the ER. And that doctor performed a quick ultrasound and came back and tried to discharge me. And I, this time I was like, no, I can't have this happen. And so I gathered the courage and the and as much energy as I could, which was difficult. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I think I'm dying and it's your job to save me. And this time, you know, he finally looked at me and said, okay, then let's give you a CT scan. And two hours later, he came back and just looked at me and said, listen, you've got cancer and it's bad. So I did feel like someone was finally listening. And I, I endured lots and lots of surgeries, six months of chemo and a lot of setbacks. And finally was declared in remission. And I moved to Miami for my recovery. And then a year later, I was while vacationing in Rome. I suffered a ground mouth seizure and I was whisked away to their nearest hospital where an MRI revealed that I had a large brain tumor. So I sat with them for 10 days and while they prepared me for my flight back to Miami and brain surgery. And it revealed that my cancer had metastasized to my brain. And they said, I might lose my right side. I might be paralyzed and I might lose my speech. And I had approximately five months to live. And now it's been five years. Yeah. And I'm doing great. And I'm living life to the fullest. She is doing great. We, we actually rock climbed earlier today. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's an amazing transformation from what, you know, what I saw at the beginning of her cancer journey to what, what she has, she's at now. It's really, it's really incredible. And our story, we wrote a book, Becoming the Best You, while watching your life go down the drain, The Lessons Cancer Taught Me. And the book isn't about how I endured, right? It's about what my caregivers taught me on how to be upbeat, unstoppable, and unafraid. That's how we say it, uh, so that I had a chance to. Yeah. And I mean, that seems like really distressing to know that there was, you know, seven months worth of time where you're like, something is wrong with me, but everyone keeps telling me I'm fine. Is that pretty standard for ovarian cancer? Uh, ovarian cancer is really hard to spot, actually. Uh, it doesn't show up on most scans. You usually need either a CT scan or an MRI. Um, I think something like 80% go unseen on ultrasound, something crazy like that. And, and like that, that is the Typical screening procedure for, you know, most gynecologists is not like they did anything wrong. Um, she hid it from her family, which I do not recommend other people doing. Um, I, I understand where that comes from, right? It's hard to like, feel like you're complaining about things all the time, but she didn't complain once. So <laughs> maybe there's a fine, you know, somewhere in between those two, there's like a healthy middle ground that you can reach. Um but, One yeah. of the lessons I learned, yeah, right? This right, is the whole part right. Of it. Yeah, it's it's advocating for yourself, right? Like that that first stint in the doctor's office, like she didn't speak up for herself nearly enough, um, and it took seven months of excruciating pain before she finally had the like cojones or whatever, I, the opposite, I suppose, uh, to uh, <laughs> in in the hospital. Like the the doctor tells you, "Hey, you're fine," and you're like, "No, no, no, man!" Like the, I know my body, like and and that, that's true for most people, I think, right? Like you know your body better than anyone else does so if something if you know something's wrong with you be insistent about that right like don't take it like all the way to Munchausen's or something like that but you know doctors know 
what is going on with the you know vast you know population of people but they don't know anything about you specifically so if you're noticing things um you know something that really helped her was journaling her symptoms uh later in her process um and just keeping track of you know anything that's really changing um because th that's the sort of information that the doctors really you know are helped out by um specifically like you had a moment when your medication was making her really sleepy that, you know, it, may, it might not for some other people, right? Like, you know, they have that laundry list of, of side effects and, you know, every person is going to be affected differently. And they were having her take in the morning. She's like, I can't function like this. And so she worked with her doctors to make sure that they were giving it to her at night instead. It's like just helping her get to sleep and, and doing all the same good stuff that I was supposed to be doing in the first place. Like a little bit of advocacy where zero is too few complaints. Right yeah <laughs> you're like you need a couple more than that not right not a thousand but let's find a happy medium yeah, yeah. and then you know just yeah. like a level of advocacy for the things you're feeling and you're going through yeah right like the squeaky wheel gets the grease right like if it's if it's always squeaking maybe we replace the wheel like <laughs> you don't have to go that far but you know if, if you're never complaining about like or like letting people know about what's going on in your life you're never going to get the help that you really need that was another big thing that we learned. So when uh, mom first arrived at the hospital, she was stuck in a room, you know, one of those like white, pristine, um, sterile rooms that hospitals need to have because you need to keep things clean and, you know, hospital rooms get gross and it needs to be something that you can just like pour bleach over and <laughs> call it a day, right? Um, but it's not like a healing space. Um, and so uh, one of the first things we did was try to turn it into a healing space. We We asked for help from all of her, you know, family and friends, uh, me and my two sisters were, uh, some of her, you know, most important caregivers, but she, we really built an army out, which was incredibly helpful. Uh, but, you know, get, getting people in to help decorate, you know, make cards, bring in flowers. Um, uh, we brought in her favorite stuffed animal and blanket and pillows from homes that she could sleep comfortably. And then something that, uh, I realized was that she wasn't spending most of her time, like particularly, aware, right? You know, you're, you're, she's lying in bed in the worst pain she's ever been in her life, uh, waiting for a week while her doctor put together a team of surgeons to operate on her. One of those situations where they're always like, we're going to operate tomorrow. And then tomorrow never comes. And it's like, she's, she's not really partaking, you know, uh, perceiving the world to the way she normally does. Right. Like she has, we, we fixed her sense of touch, at least with, with the blankets and pillows. Uh, but she's not opening her eyes much. Um, she can't smell, you know, or taste much. Uh, just from all the medicines and everything, um, you know, being pumped through her. And all she can really do is hear, and all she's hearing are these like beeps and whirs and clicks of the machines keeping her alive, which, uh, you know. I was really depressed. Yeah. Yeah. It was... She was, she was, yeah. Yeah. You were in a terrible place. Um, and the, 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 you know, those machines don't sound happy. It's not a, it's not a fun noise and you can't turn them off. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sometimes, sometimes, you know, <laughs> sometimes you want to, but you can't turn them off. Uh, and so it's like, how do we fix this? Um, and so uh, my dad and I went to a local music store, called them up. They were like about to close. Like, we need you to stay open for an extra 15 minutes. We're going to buy something and leave. <laughs> Ran in, grabbed an electric piano, confidently marched through the halls of the hospital and plopped it in a room. And I, I played piano for... Um, I think four hours that day and then, you know, many hours over the rest of the week. And then you could just see her mood like visibly improve when, when we did that. So it's like finding, finding the things that you can change, right? It's, it's this like laundry list of things that you can't change, right? You can't change the room she's in, can't change the medicine she's on, machines that are 
but there are little bits and pieces that you can like find a way to make your situation just a little bit better. And I think that's a, a beautiful lesson, not just for someone going through cancer, but really for anyone in any, any place in life. And, and I want to say that that's exactly right. What my caregivers taught me is so often we say, you know, accept the things you cannot change and change the things you can and have the wisdom to know the difference. But I was so depressed. And, and I think so many people, when we have challenging times, is what my caregivers did is they taught me in, to focus on the things that they we could change, which is why bringing in the plants and bringing in the stuffed animal and bringing in the cozy blankets and bringing the piano in and, and bringing in all the music helped me realize how much and gave me that empowerment of how much I, we could change given the confines of my situation. And in doing so, I was able to accept the things I cannot change. It could not change more so. And that's what was the beginning of the trajectory of my challenging journey to say the least is they kept realizing, oh my gosh, she's got to be reminded again. What can we change? And that did let me accept each new challenges that came along, which were many. Yeah. It was brilliant. And I mean, I think, you know, that, that depression feeling is very natural, right? Like anyone who has had cancer impact their life in any way knows that like just the diagnosis is very hard on everyone in your life. You know, like I, I have been a stage away affected and it's like the moment you hear it, like everybody starts crying. It's very emotional, especially for the person, you know, at the center of it. Is there like something that you can keep in mind or try and, you know, just try and keep always present in those days or week or whatever it is after the diagnosis that really helped, you know, until you can get to that point that you've made some changes that really help your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. I, I think um, it's. Hmm. I think that what's so important <laughs> is what they taught me again was when I was really in a bad space, Robert used to sit there and go, pause right and i think so instead of being so reactionary and going down deep so fast yeah robert helped me with and and they all did but talk about yeah. the pause yeah perspective so, and pivot so yeah there, there we go uh pause perspective pivot right so when you're freaking out when when your you know mind is going a thousand miles an hour you just need to slow down take a beat and and you know take a deep breath or I mean if you're you know if you've just been diagnosed with cancer probably taking a deep breath and, and trying to relax or meditate or whatever works for you is is the best way you can do it but in in regular life maybe it's going on a run or watching a funny movie or something like that but you, you need to stop thinking about whatever it is you're freaking out about and just clear your mind for a second and then take perspective of your situation um I think it's really easy to look at the negative side of things all the time we're sort of conditioned to do so but if you can, you know, flip that around and see what the positives are, right? Like, yes, I was just diagnosed with cancer, but I was just diagnosed with cancer. I don't like unknowingly have cancer right now, right? Like there's, there's this thing that we know about. There's this problem that we can tackle. Um, whereas when it was an unlabeled problem, there, there wasn't anything we could do about it, right? Like that's, there's some positive there. Um, if you can, you know, find a way to be surrounded by your loved ones. Um, I think it, there's this phrase I love, uh, comedy is just tragedy plus time. And there are like all these little moments in life that you can find to laugh about if you are just willing to. And I think, I think if you like think about the funniest moments that are from your life, 
a lot of them are going to be moments that you were none too pleased with at, at the time of, right? Like, you know, the time that you fell on your face or, you know, slipped on a banana peel or, well, you know, whatever, whatever happened to you. Um, it's not fun in the moment, but you, when you look back on it, it's hilarious. And if you can just like take that, the time between it being awful and it being hilarious and just, just bring that down to minimum. Um, I think, I think that's like a great way to just brighten your life and brighten the life of you know, those around you. And you know, one time, I mean, I had so many ridiculous moments where I was mortified. I was embarrassed because, you know, I had to have an ostomy because of them taking out two feet of my bowel and I couldn't urinate on my own. So when that first happened and I was re finally released from the hospital, they gave me a Foley bag, which is the size, it's, it's this big, it's the size of a huge soup carton. And I was so determined and everyone else was to, you know, let me get out and, and push through this cancer diagnosis. So I actually took the Foley bag and flipped it over my handlebars and biked into town. It was only a mile, but we got there. And then as soon as we got there, I fell over and the Foley bag just literally ripped open and all the urine goes over, splashed everywhere. And again, comedy is tragedy plus time and I'm just start sobbing again and I'm so embarrassed and I keep thinking I cannot endure this cancer and my daughters are like they just give me a hug and they said listen mom nobody cares look around they can see you're emaciated you've got a wig on they know what's going on and and forget about them and in time you're going to be able to laugh at this and you know what's fun is I had a sense that maybe they were right although I didn't believe it and it didn't take long for us to laugh. And and I think that that is so much about what my caregivers taught me is getting that perspective, no matter what's going on, and just sit there and think, you know, like you said, it's so important. At least we had a diagnosis. We have cancer. So we right. can start tackling the problem. And then we can start finding the ridiculousness out of all of this and try to keep laughing as I'm enduring it worked. And then, and then that final step is pivot where you, you know, you, you take this new perspective and, and find a direction to go where you can make just some small positive change, right? It doesn't have to be big. You don't have to climb Everest in a day, but just, just a couple steps forward or even like diagonal, it doesn't really matter as long as you're sort of trending in the right direction. Just, just make sure that you find something manageable to do that will put you in a better position tomorrow. It seems like there's a bit of building momentum to the whole situation where you're like, look, we started at the bottom of this hill and it's going to be a rough ride given like we understand that. Right. However, like, you know, day one, we're, we're thinking about the positives. It's no longer an unknown. Like we are getting through what we, and we know about there is treatment. We're doing that. We have people around us. Now we're making changes. Now we're having, you know, stories and laughs and, and moments along the way. And it's like, there'll be bumps in the road, but as long as you don't full stop, like the ride is a little easier. Yeah, exactly. Colton, that's beautifully said. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also think that one of the things that helped us is people try to do it alone. And my army was like, no, and I knew it, but I need, I needed more than myself and one person. Cause I really, it really was that imperative. And my army taught me how to build an army. We knew we needed to build an army because none of us could handle my mom's cancer caretaking alone. And I, th I think there's this perception that 
being vulnerable and asking for help is is a sign of weakness. But I think it really takes a lot of strength, actually, and, and courage to, you know, show people your vulnerabilities and ask them for help in, in handling them. Um, and I, I think that's something that we did an excellent job of as my mother's army. My sisters and I asked our friends and family and, you know, my mom's old friends for help. And we were just honest with them, like, hey, I need help walking my dog, taking the trash out. I don't have time to make dinner on this particular day. Is there any way, you know, we could grab dinner together or, you know, you could come over for, you know, lunch or something like that. But being being specific and being vulnerable uh, when asking for help is such an important part of, and, and, you know, actually making the decision to ask for help are such an important part of getting through any challenge like this. Uh, it's not something that you can handle, and it's not something something you should try to handle. And and I think I think that problem comes from two sides. The person who's going through something doesn't want to ask for help because they feel like they will give this undue burden to to their loved ones, which is a a misconception. I think people love having a purpose, and if you you know there there's actually many studies that show that people actually look more favorably upon you after they've done a small favor for you. Um, and if you can, you know, turn, turn this caregiving into, you know, from a full-time job into a number of small favors, you will actually make people feel better, feel more connected. You will naturally develop this, uh, sort of community of caregivers at, at that we call an army, um, that, that can, you know, support themselves and support each other while supporting you. My my daughters and Robert did a great job. One time they, they realized like all the extra things that I, that obviously our insurance doesn't pay for, that I needed to have a fundraiser. And what was so wonderful about it is, in fact, although it was a fundraiser, it was actually a community building party and that the whole army got together. And it was amazing what I heard from all my caretakers about that party, it brought them together. And there are still dear friends who they didn't know each other before. Yeah, it was it was a really fun time, actually. So we had this idea, uh, mom needed wigs, uh, along with, you know, a number of other medical expenses that just weren't covered by her insurance. And so we had this idea to throw a wig party where we got a bunch of wigs from a local salon and had mom try them on, took pictures of her in them. And had people, uh, you know, vote on on the wigs. They they could like buy tickets or you know whatever to uh, to vote on them. And then whichever wigs had the most votes, we ended up buying. And mom would wear them and display them for for her friends. And and it was wonderful for everyone involved because we got to get this entire community of people who love mom together and you know feel like we were doing this good deed and supporting her. And uh, mom also had you know first off got got wigs and felt so wonderful whenever she was wearing her wigs. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a gift from somebody. It was a gift from my entire army. And I knew that when, when wearing them, it reminded me how many people were there to support me. And that's the thing that I, I really encourage people is that don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to have an army. It's doing everyone good. Yeah. It's it's too hard to go it alone, and it's a lo- it's a longer journey than people realize. 
It, it really is a long journey and, and it doesn't end when you're in remission. You know, there's a lot of recovery that you still have to do. You have to, you know, when you're in remission, other than having can like you don't no longer have cancer, but other than that, your body is at its weakest point that it's ever been in. It's just survived months and months of, of chemo, which is literally poison that we give our bodies, um, which that kills the cancer faster than it kills you. Uh, it's it's a good idea to have chemo if you need chemo. I'm not saying don't don't you know don't drink the poison or don't take the poison, but it is literally poisoning your body, and you need to recover and regain strength for a long time after that. And you know you may never be the same. And not just physically, it's mentally. Yeah, it uh, it really takes a toll a toll on you and everyone around you. Cancer tries to destroy everyone's lives. Yeah. And it's up to you and your army of loved ones to pick up the pieces, the shards that are left and build a new life and accept what's your new normal and build from there. Yeah. And it seems like an invaluable resource to have like people in your corner to have that army because you're like, if you're totally alone, like that's a very, a very hard fight. And I understand some people try and, and choose to do that. Uh, I had a member of my my close family circle, I'll say, that uh, chose to tell no one until the very end. And that was like, I think it, it was almost harder for the rest of us to accept. And I know it's like, it's a very personal choice, but it seems so much easier to just like, let people in because even if it's worst case scenario, like it's people that get to build memories with you. And not just you know, they're not just doing work like they're they're really there for you and not just like, oh, because it's my turn to walk the dog. Yeah, exactly. And people don't mind walking a dog every, you know, once a week or something like that. It's it's kind of a fun thing. And when it feels like they're doing some good deed for the world, it, it just makes it that much better. And, and you know, I, I really can't imagine how hard that was for you all, because to not even be given a chance to help someone. That's tragic. So I can't imagine what you guys went through. Yeah, I I think it was, like I said, it's that it's that abruptness that you get when like someone receives a cancer diagnosis, right? Like it's very hard and depressing kind of on everyone around. Like I said, you need that day to cry. But when that like day to cry is two days from what the doctors have expected, you know, the end date to be like, it's a very accelerated experience. And uh, like I said, I, I totally get people's decision to, you know, make this as public or as private as they want. I just think that there's like, there's a, a lot of things that you're missing if you don't give people the chance to be there, right? Because like this army is not just for the person going through it. It's also for literally everyone else. Like, yes, it it makes you good to do the small things, but it also still like builds up everyone like you said you're building a community that maintains way past the the treatment yeah yeah it's it's incredible i mean mom still has wonderful friends from that time uh actually she had a friend from high school that she hadn't spoken to in 30 years <laughs> no 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 but but a, a long time a long time and i really needed a lot of help because there was so much going wrong and it was made aware to me that, you know, my children couldn't do it all. My, even though our army was big, it wasn't big enough. And so I actually reached out to 
an old friend of mine and I shared what was going on. And she, of course, which most people do said, oh my goodness, how can I help? And just like Robert had said, you know, another lesson that I learned is have specific requests. And so when someone asks, then you get to give a real request that they can say yes or no to. And I shared with her that I needed more help when I had my chemo days if my daughter was who was in law school at the time, had an exam and she lived three hours away. And she literally said to me, oh my goodness, of course I'll do it. Although she was shocked. And to this day, we're, we're dearest friends because of that pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, uh, certainly. And, you know, in looking through, you know, your book and all the things you do, you'd kind of listed out these seven steps that you're like, here's the things, right? Yeah. Can you kind of expand on that for everyone listening? Sure. So the seven lessons that I learned that are actually lessons for life, uh, you know, people think, oh, they're just great for cancer, but it's what's helping me live a fulfilling life now is understand that we need to have the courage to change the things we can about a situation. It's getting our affairs in order. It's asking for help, even when healthy. It's pushing yourself, taking life one step at a time, packing a toolbox of strategies and adding more to them as you go along, and then accepting that grief is the price we pay for love. Was there, you know, it's like, like you said, it's a list for life. And a lot of people, I think, don't ever take those steps. Like they're not doing these things. Is there one that you found like when you get to it or you get around to it, like, you know, however many times you've had to go through this, is there one that you're like, oh, this is definitely the hardest one. Like be prepared for this to be your, the place you lose momentum. Wow. That's a good question. That's a good one. I think for a lot of people asking for help is the toughest mm -hmm. part. It, it requires, um, you know, like I said, it, it requires you to vulnerable, but it also requires you to you know, face rejection and, and you're going to be rejected a lot, right? You know, other people have their own things going on. Sometimes they don't have the mental capacity to, you know, help you even though they may want to. And so going into this, expecting that you're going to get maybe three quarters of the people you ask are going to say no. Like that's, that's really tough. That's a tough spot to put yourself in. You know, it's, it's hard facing rejection. But I think if you go in realizing that other people like want to help, maybe maybe they can't help you with something specific, but maybe they have a friend who can help, right? Like the, the phrase, can you help me with this? I have cancer is a very powerful, it's a very powerful question. It's very, it, it, it really is evocative and, and convinces people to uh, provide assistance. But the phrase, hey, can you help with this? My best friend has cancer works almost as well, right? Like it's not like you've lost a whole lot in that, in that, uh, you know, slight relationship. Uh, if you go all the way to like spaceballs levels, like my father's uncles, cousins, nephews, brothers, former roommate, maybe, maybe at that level, you've lost people. Maybe that's not as effective a plea, but, you know, asking people who can't help if they could just, you know, ask for a, a, a you know, help from a friend. It turns out people, um, people's friends actually have more friends than they do just by nature of, you know, outgoing people having a bunch of friends and you will probably be friends with an outgoing person. So like the average person has seven friends. And if you're only getting a, you know, 20% uh, success rate, you're going to have one and a half people helping you. But your friends on average have 10 friends. 
And so if you're getting a 20% success rate from your friends and their friends, suddenly you've got 14 people helping you. And it's just such a wild difference. It turns, you know, if, if it's 60 hours a week to take care of, you know, your needs, it turns from a 40 hour a week job per person to a, you know, four hour a week job per person. And that's something that people can, you know, fit into their schedules if they love you. And I'm sure more people love you than you think do, right? Like mom, mom's friends that she called 20 years after talking to her, um, you know, pe- people that you run into, a, you know, at church or at your work or, you know, whatever it is you do, there are people there who see you, know you and care about you and don't en- envision your army as being smaller than it really is. And you know what? I was going to jump on. This is great, Robert, is that social media is actually a great place to share your story and be vulnerable. You know, I just, I can't say enough about being vulnerable and sharing with the world what's going on. And there are places now, if you call the American, you know, Cancer Society and you, what's nice is the hospitals are getting better and better about having support groups. And so no matter how few you think you have number of people you have to reach out to, don't believe it. Just keep, asking and accepting the rejection, but looking and having more people help and help ask. I think that that's the very powerful yeah. thing, Robert. Like the one thing multi-level marketing got right. <laughs> yeah. It seems like one of those, I can definitely see why it would be hard because it's not like, Oh, I have to ask for help and bring this up once. You're like, no, you're going to have to do this quite a number of times. Yeah. You know, like if you're, you know, friends with me, for instance, and you posted on Facebook, I'm not even going to know it happened. Like, so you're going to have to at least tell me one other time that it happened. And like the amount of times that has to compound, you're like, boy, I really don't like telling this story, but I have to get comfortable with it very quickly. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely that. And it's, it's also having an idea of what you, you know, what you need, putting that list together of, of specific requests is so important. And, and uh, you can't like go on social media and like just blast everyone and say, like, hey, hey, can anyone bring me dinner on Thursday? Right. Right. It's like the classic uh, 911 thing, right? Like if if an emergency happens and you shout someone call 911, odds are no one calls 911. If you if an emergency happens and you point at someone and say you call 911, that person is going to call 911. Right. Sure. Like like you need to you know, make people feel like they are the most important person for a task. Like they are the only one who can help you do it. And that will make them feel like a hero when they do rise to the occasion. Absolutely right. So in these steps, obviously, like if that's the hardest one, and I can imagine that for sure, is there one that you were like, oh, this one's a breeze. Like you should just get this one out of the way now. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, I wish. (laughs) Yeah, that would be nice. Um, I think... The easiest one, um, you know, packing your toolbox of strategies, like everyone has all these experiences you've gone through in life. Do not forget the lessons you've learned along your way. Um, if if I had to add one strategy to anyone's toolbox, it would be to try and perceive things a little bit more optimistically, try to find the humor in life, um, try to have fun. It will make your life better. It will make life of those around you better if you are able to laugh instead of, you know, cry or get upset. Uh, when things don't go your way. And also you will be a healthier person because laughing releases endorphins and makes your body generally healthier and better at, you know, staving off illness and stuff like that. So um, I can tell you that 
we laughed our way through cancer yeah. and everyone in my army took on that job. And as bad as things were, you know, I was being wheeled into the <laughs> OR for another surgery. And thank goodness a friend of mine who's been with me for years understood the whole situation and a nurse that was pushing me through, she stops, she's about to release me. And she said, you know, my, my sister had a variant, has ovarian cancer. And I, I said, Oh my goodness. And, you know, after all that I've gone through, I, I really want to hear from everyone else, how their situation is going. And so I was asking her, you know, how's her husband dealing with that? How is her family? What is she doing with work? You know, where is she now? And she just abruptly said, oh, well, sadly, she died last month. And then, you know, Mike's down. She walks away. And my friend and I are, are like, both of us are thinking in our heads, like, really? That's what a nurse says to you 30 seconds before you go into an, uh, the OR? And what was so cool is we both started hysterically laughing. And we'll never forget this moment. And the truth of the matter is, we knew that the only tool we had at that time was to laugh. And we laughed and laughed and laughed. And, you know, and I love it. I always go, no, really, they say laughter is the best medicine. It really is. It really is. And 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 I think that one's the easiest one because all it all requires is changing the way you think about things, right? Everything else requires going out, doing something, making a phone call, you know, it's a lot of externalities that take real time, but just seeing things like a little bit more glass half full rather than glass half empty is, is it's a change that you can make on your own instantaneously. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I hope that it is that easy for everyone out there. I, I know it's not, but, uh, you know, it, it is, it is the one that I think makes the largest difference for the least amount of, um, time potentially. And I can tell you, I got better and better at it. Yeah. Like it really is so a skill. It is a skill. Yeah. And and everyone should be encouraged to practice that skill. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I had someone uh someone was recently telling me about, you know, your emotional home. They're like, where is your baseline? And they said mm. most people pick like if it goes up to 10 and down to negative 10, most people pick zero because it's in the middle. And they were like, but that choice is awful. Like, why would you pick zero? You don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to have a zero day. Like, pick five, pick two, pick something in the positives, because yeah. then at least every day is a net positive. <laughs> just every day being a coin flip to be awful or incredible, just like, why not make it more likely that it's great, right? It's it's entirely your choice. Absolutely yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's that moment is you're like, okay, we could sit here in, in stunned silence and be like, wow, that's horrible. Apparently yeah. outcomes are bad. Or you could be like, what a terrible storyteller. Like that's the most inappropriate moment and just laugh about it. Phenomenally bad bedside manner. Just like, <laughs> really like. Oh, that's great. That could great. Have used in a PSA, like do not do this. Right. You know, oh. just realizing that you're in this what? crazy sitcom scenario. It's like, oh, a studio audience would laugh at this if, if there were cameras rolling right now. Because sometimes it's just one more Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Right? It was great. But we, oh yeah, we still laugh all the time. Yeah, you're like someone cue laugh track because otherwise this is, this is <laughs> yeah. the moment music starts playing that I don't want to hear. <laughs> right. Uh, nice. So, I mean, obviously you've gotten to to tell your story through the book. You've been talking on shows. Is there usually 
something you've found that you like to leave people with a thought to take in or, you know, something to just take on the road with them? Yeah, I think try to make the people around you laugh. I think I think that's that's the biggest thing for me is is that that, you know, every moment when my mom was going through her horrible journey, um, any any time you could make her laugh, you realized first off that she had a fighting chance. And second off, you realized why you were doing all of this, right? Like we're, we're doing all this to make the people we love happy and, and you know, what, whatever, whatever that entails, but at, you know, and anytime you can just make the life of those around you a little bit better is, is, is a, you know, is an opportunity you should take and, and you will be all the happier for it. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. I can't say enough how important it is to share with your loved ones how much they mean to you and why they're fighting and giving that perspective really does help you push for the next hour or day. And that can make all the difference. I think those are fantastic thoughts to leave people with. And I thank you so much, both of you for your time and for coming on the show and telling the story and, you know, all, all the wonderful advice that you've given, I wanted to make sure that people know where to find you if they're looking to either find your book or hear more from you. Absolutely. Uh, you can find us online at becoming the best you, that's the letter U, uh, com. becoming the best you. Uh, the letter U stands for upbeat, unstoppable, and unafraid. There are links there to buy our book on Amazon, or you can search for on Amazon yourself. Again, becoming the best you will get you there. Fantastic. Well, if people go and they they find that book and they purchase it, please, as I always tell everyone, please leave reviews. It helps your creators so much and it helps other people find this book if they didn't hear this episode. Thank you so much, Colton. We're just so grateful to be on the show with you. And we just are so proud of the message you're sending out to the world. I know episodes with these topics can be hard for some to listen through. I've had good friends of mine tell me they just won't listen to certain episodes because of the content, and that's understandable, but I hope those of you who did listen could tell that this was nowhere near the doom and gloom that occupies the treatment space sometimes. It was a lot of laughs with a couple great people, and we crammed a lot of learning into a three-quarter hour segment. Lastly, it's the end of October, and the rankings are as follows. Number one the United States, led by New York, California, and Oregon. Number two, the United Kingdom, with England dominating the chart. Number three, Canada, with New Brunswick surprisingly overtaking the others. Number four, Australia, with New South Wales firmly out in front. And number five, Ireland, beating Germany and New Zealand for a last-minute win. That's it for this week. Have a great weekend, a spooky Halloween, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until the next episode, please do all those things that help the show, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. Remember, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.